Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you walk those floors in April, a total quiet. Everybody either on a vent or in nice you, nobody talking, no visitors, quiet. And you walk down the hall and you know a good percentage of these people probably won't make it. That was our reality. New York was the first major epicenter of the pandemic in the United States. As the virus rippled through the state, tens of thousands of patients flooded the hallways of New York's hospitals. Northwell Health, one of the largest private healthcare systems in the state, was at the center of the storm. With most of its facilities in New York City and surrounding areas, they've treated more COVID-19 patients than any other hospital system in the country. So today I sit down and speak to Michael Dowling. He's president and CEO of Northwell Health, who has co-written a new book about the lessons learned in the early days of the coronavirus crisis. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Let me just start off by asking, how are you doing? Well, right now it's relatively easy compared to what it was like back in April and in March. As you know, we only have about 80 COVID patients in our facilities right now. Back in April, we had 3,500 inpatients in our facilities. And in total, we actually have treated 76,000 COVID patients. That's incredible. 22% of all the COVIDs in New York State came through our organization because of where we're located. How how challenging was that for the system? Did it have enough redundancy to be able to handle all these new patients? Yes, we're, we're very large, but we're also very integrated. So we have our own transport network. We have our own supply chain network. We have our own warehouses for supplies. We're an academic center, research center. We have 800 ambulatory locations along with 23 hospitals, and we work in total unity. And because we're able to do that, we were able to handle it well. I I do think Northwell sort of held up as an example of a system that was able to handle these incredible surges in patients. Did you plan for this sort of thing? Did you imagine it? We actually began to develop our emergency management infrastructure back about 20 years ago. We started to develop it prior to 9-11. And we've used it consistently over the years with SARS, H1N1, Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Sandy. So we have a culture here of preparedness. The attitude around here is that we have to be very comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's why we also build our own lab because we now can do almost 50,000 lab tests a day. You know, I, I, I would talk to, to nurses and, and other doctors, and there was always this sense, look, I, I might have the virus. I, I think I was very careful today, but I'm very worried about taking it home. How do you deal with that sort of psychological impact? 
Well, at the beginning, that was an issue because obviously, as you know very, very well, we were dealing with something we didn't know an awful lot about. But we communicated continuously. Every single hour, we were communicating with staff. We were giving them the new guidelines. I personally was on the floor of every ICU in every facility almost every day. I walked the floors of every hospital. And I had my other leadership did the same thing. And I had, we had to let them know that we were there, we had their back, and we were assuring them that we were going to make sure that they had the PPE that they would need. We were the first organization to require everybody to wear masks. So we, we developed an awful lot of support services, psychological services, tranquility tents we put up in front of every facility to provide as much support to the frontline staff as possible. It's all about the frontline staff. It sounds like what you're saying is just over-communication, uh, walking the walk, all of that went a long way. Oh, absolutely. And assuring them the PPE was huge. When you're able to tell the staff, we have enough masks, we have enough N95s, we have the shields and the gloves. We booked hotel rooms so that staff could stay in a hotel if they didn't want to go home. We set up daycare arrangements, so if their kids needed some daycare support, we provided it. I was actually unbelievably humbled by the commitment of the staff. The healthcare workers, I mean, there, there are some bright spots. They, in many places, they did really rise to this challenge. We saved 10,000 people in the last two months. People died, yes, that's very unfortunate, and that was very troubling to everybody. And we had staff whose parents died in the same unit as where they worked. And I came across that a number of times. I was in the hospital when a nurse came out of the unit. I walk over, I talk to her. She was a little down. I said, what's up? She says, my mother just passed away in the room down the hall. I said to her, well, you gotta take a little time off. She says, no, I'm, I'm staying with my shift. My unit needs me. When you see this on an ongoing basis, your sense of humanity changes and it changes your perspective on life. Uh, we will never again be the same, nor should we. That is an extraordinary story. You know, sir, I, I get the sense from talking to you that Northwell wanted to make sure their teams felt very supported. I don't know that I feel the same way about the country as a whole. How would you evaluate the rest of the country in terms of how it's doing with that same level of support, with that same level of clear communication, transparency, all the things that you're talking about? I've been speaking to quite a number of the leaders of the other health systems around the country. But when I talked to some of the people that I've been on the phone with, I was shocked that they didn't seem to pay attention to what was being learned in New York. I think they had this assumption, well, I'm, I'm in from the, you know, let's say Texas or Oklahoma, whatever, and it's never going to happen here. You are the CEO of a very large healthcare system, obviously a healthcare system that was squarely in the middle of this pandemic. There's going to be financial losses because you're not doing as much elective surgery, your hospitals are being turned into COVID hospitals, and yet you're the CEO. So how do you balance that? Well, I told uh, staff at the very beginning, I said, do not worry about the budget as we struggle to take care of the community and the patients. We will figure that later. Let's just do what we have to do. And after it's over, we will work our way back. So I, you know, I'm working through budget night now for this year, and we will have a big loss this year. Uh, we suck it up, 
quite honestly. And we try to get the business back, which is happening. And if we don't have another uptick and another COVID crisis in the fall, it'll take us a year or two years and we will come back and we'll be fine. How worried are you about another uptick, as you call it? I do expect us to have a surge in COVID cases. I hope it's not going to be anything like what we had. But I do think we will have an uptick, especially given the increasing movement of people between states and also when the schools open. But if it comes back, we are ready. You, you, you raise this issue of schools. Does this make sense to you, just this idea of schools starting to, and sports and all those things starting to come back? I do believe that the schools, if the school districts and each individual schools handle this properly, that you can have a balance between classroom and home. I keep reminding people that in a hospital, there is no social distancing. Everybody is masked though. And our infection inside our hospitals is almost minimal because of the mask. So if you mask properly and you social distance when you can, I think you can manage this. The question is whether people can implement it properly. It doesn't seem like what you're recommending or suggesting is, is that hard. But I was watching the Republican National Convention. I see these large gatherings inside the White House, people not wearing masks, people standing close together. And look, I, I, don't, I, I really don't want to make this political because I don't think that it, that helps right now. But I do think it sends the wrong message to people that it's still not important. And I, I figure for someone like you, it must, it must make you mad. It infuriates me because it represents what leadership should not be. Leadership is about uh, unity, sending the right messages, uh, walking the walk, acknowledging that you have a problem. We do have a national problem and you have to acknowledge it. And to be out there on the one hand when the public health officials say you should do X and our political leaders say you should do the opposite, it confuses everybody. You know, I, I often think, I would like to take some of these people and have them around with us back in April and have them walk the ICU floor with me and then tell me it didn't make a difference and then tell me it's a fake and then tell me it's not serious. You were not on the floors. When you walk those floors in April, a total quiet, everybody either on a vent or in ICU, nobody talking, no visitors, quiet. And you walk down the hall and you know a good percentage of these people probably won't make it. That was our reality. Those people on those groups, I wish they could see that reality. Maybe it might change their minds. Mr. Downing, that, that is such an important point. You, The book is called Leading Through a Pandemic, and I was reading it last night, and there's so many fascinating things there. One of the things you talk about, New Orleans, they're planning for a 100-year flood, and they build these levees to essentially plan for a 10-year flood. Whereas in Holland, they're planning for a 100-year flood, and they say, we're going to build the levees and the dams for a 1,000-year flood. We want to be over-prepared. We want to really make sure this doesn't affect us. And I, and I love that way of thinking, but I do wonder, as a CEO of a hospital system, how do you instill that sort of philosophy into a large system saying, we're going to plan for something that may not happen. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us resources and time, but we need to do it. You manage for the present, but you lead for the future. And so I'm always thinking about where should we be 10 years from now? 15 years ago, we decided to build a huge lab that can now do about 
40 to 50,000 tests a day. It's the largest lab by any health system in the United States. We built that years ago, it's an expense. We built the transport network. I built my own warehouses uh, years ago when everybody said, well, it's crazy, why do you need an Amazon type warehouse for supplies? I said, well, what happens if? I keep telling staff all the time, the biggest competitor to all of us is the status quo. We have to lean into the future and you plan for the future and we invest for the future. I just want to make sure that there's a lesson in there for other institutions because this has been the debate, right? The public health versus the economic health. Uh, as a healthcare institution, maybe it's less of a debate. I mean, you have a clear obligation to take care of patients. But what about other institutions? Leadership to me is about getting ahead of it and taking the short-term hurt to for the longer-term gain and the longer-term sustainability. And I think every organization should be thinking this way. For example, I think every time we build a building now, whether it's a hospital or an office building, we will be thinking about the concept of social distancing because we all know things like this can happen again. As a country, we gotta be investing a lot more on domestic production of our supply base. You know, the, the munitions we need to fight a war against the virus, we should not be dependent upon other countries to, to, to get them from. Look, everyone that I talk to within the world of virology says, there's gonna be some version of this that happens again. One of the things that strikes me talking to you, and I've watched some of your other interviews as well, is that you've always struck a pretty optimistic tone. What was driving your optimism? I'm basically by nature optimistic. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I came here as a kid by myself. And I don't think any immigrant came to this country as a pessimist. And if you're leading an organization, you got to be upbeat. You got to be inspiring. I mean, who wants to follow somebody that is walking around in the doldrums all the time with their head down? We, you know, we can't do this. This is terrible. Oh my God, what a place we're in. Who the heck wants to follow that? When you are walking the halls of the, these units, these COVID units, you're in your 70s yourself. When you reflect, how worried were you? Was it, was it worth the risk? I wasn't worried at all. It was worth the risk. I had physicians here, uh, including some of my medical leadership, who said to me, you should not do this. Uh, 70, I didn't think I was 70. I mean, that's, that's a chronological age. I don't feel that at all. I'm actually 50. I have got to be out there. I cannot sit in my desk, expect the troops to be out there, you know, fighting the fight, and in my, in my mind, hiding I got to be out there. Are you optimistic about the future now? I know you're an optimistic person by nature, but what do you think things are going to look like a year from now? Well, I think we'll be in, uh, hopefully, in a much better position COVID-wise. But I also think that the lessons learned here will help us develop a new normal for the delivery of healthcare. I've been, for example, spending a lot of time out in um, you know, inner city communities over the last month or two. We've been in a lot of the churches in the minority communities. COVID demonstrated this unbelievable inequity because of the disproportionate effect of COVID on these populations. We've always known this, but I don't think we'd realize it as starkly as COVID demonstrated it. Now the question becomes for healthcare and for people like me is, what do we do about it? We can't just say we understand. We've got to figure out how to actually do. 
As the virus surges in other parts of the country, I do hope we can all learn from the triumphs and the mistakes in New York and that we can do better for the COVID-19 patients today, but also for the next pandemic. And if you're interested, do check out Michael Dowling and Charles Kenny's new book. It's called Leading Through a Pandemic, the inside story of humanity, innovation, and lessons learned during the COVID-19 crisis. And if you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and then email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.